There once was a man who was asked, what did you ever gain by regularly praying to God? And the man replied, I guess little. But let me tell you what I lost. I lost anger. I lost ego. I lost depression. I lost insecurity. And I lost my fear of death. Sometimes the answer to our prayers is not gaining, but losing. Now, today, we are beginning a study uh, about being linked. We started it just about a year ago, and today we're going to start Link 2.0. And for the next three episodes, we will be learning to develop our active connection to God. Today, we're going to move past the theory and all of the should statements. We are not here to should all over each other. We are here to, when we gather, to encourage one another to move in pursuit of Jesus. So we're going to move past some of those dreaded, get up earlier, pray longer, pray harder, do better kinds of themes and we're going to go to prayer school. How might we actually get better? How can we actually improve? Not theoretically, how can we do it? What steps, what baby steps can we take to improve our connection and get us linked and keep us linked? So through prayer, we may be formed into the likeness of Christ. This is our goal by being transformed by the renewing of our minds. In this pursuit of Christ, we further push back. We fight back. We are actively not being conformed to the pattern of this world. Luke chapter 11, verse 1. One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When He finished, one of His disciples said to Him, Lord, teach us to pray, just as John taught His disciples. Now, these guys had all been praying their entire lives. It's part of their culture. They know how to pray. They were all well acquainted with prayer. But their experience did not seem to be the same experience as Jesus was having. Jesus, help us to improve our connection to God. Jesus, help us to be linked like you are linked. Verse 2, he said to them, when you pray, say, Father. Right away, first word, relational in context, personal in experience, Father. We need you to be the one who provides for us, and we need you to be the one who protects us. Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Verse 3, give us each day our daily bread. Four, forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. Who wants a lousy prayer life? Is there anyone who wants one? Who, who wants to get worse at praying? Who, who, who believes being better at prayer might actually be a good thing? I mean, that's me. Who, who wants to say, Lord, teach me to pray, but at the same time, you're nervous about how hard that might be and what it might cost you? And I go, oh, that's me right there. Is that you too? Come on, Church Online, is that how you feel? What if it's just too hard? Prayer stuff, if it was easy, I would have already been doing it. When Jesus' followers wanted to learn to pray, He taught them to recite His own words. He said, say this. We can still take the advice of Jesus, just like His first century followers. We can still 
use Jesus' words and, frankly, all of Scripture to fuel our communion with God. So we use His words when we pray. But here's part of the problem. Modern, literate people, which I'm sort of assuming that many of you are, tend to approach the Bible as a manual or like a textbook, a document that needs to be dissected, it needs to be mastered, it needs to be parsed, and it needs to be implemented. We stand over the text, and we decide which parts we're going to read and when we're going to read them and how to respond to those parts that we've read. But this has not always been the approach throughout history. I I remember being taught this somewhere along the line a long time ago. Maybe you've heard this too. Does this sound familiar, the Bible, the B-I-B-L-E? Do you know what the B-I-B-L-E stands for? This is what I was told. Basic instructions before leaving earth. Basic instructions. So it's, it's a textbook. It's do this. It's guidelines. It's rules. It's how-tos. It's lists. But that doesn't speak anything about our relationship with our loving Heavenly Father. And do you see how it immediately uh, creates distance, these rules? That's what we need to do. And if, and, and if we do it, if we do all those things that God says, then, then maybe God will like us. We're so prone to want to earn our salvation that we constantly come back to this idea. But we have been saved by grace, out of love and mercy from our kind and loving Heavenly Father. And if we have a view of rules for ourselves, we can't help but focus that outwards as well. Rules for me and certainly rules for you. Rules, rules, rules. For all of you people around me, you all must do what God says. Rules are even more important for others than they are for me. So let's demand for people who don't believe in God that the first thing they need to do is follow all of God's laws, or even worse, man's interpretation of God's laws. Don't worry about a relationship to God. Don't worry about communion or interaction. Just follow the laws as if God gave us laws simply so that we would follow them. He gives us law. He gives us direction to aid us on our road trip in earnest pursuit of Christ. But they guide us into relationship. And in that relationship, I choose to do these things so that I might know Him better, so that I might be better connected, better linked to Him. I don't just follow rules for the sake of rules. He gave me the gift of the Holy Spirit to guide me and to prompt me, and the better I am linked, the better I can hear the Spirit's voice. The more I follow the nudges, the more I follow the promptings, the better I can hear the Spirit's voice, and the better I can hear the Spirit's voice, the better the connection. The, 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 the better the connection I have, the, the closer the communion, the more intimate the relationship. The way we think about things has deep and lasting implications for how we live and for how we live with others around us. Then that next part, before leaving earth, that's the heaven idea. Uh, do, do the Bible things so that you can uh, get up and go and leave here and get to go to heaven. That draws us right back to our discussion that we had, looking into heaven. We had it just last week. What we believe about heaven impacts how we interact now as well. 
So think of it less as going to heaven and more that God will come and live with us in our midst to be with us, and it focuses again on the intimacy and relationship. Do you see the Bible primarily as a book of answers that guided us to live your best life now? Or do you engage with the Bible as a window through which you see and know God? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run the race marked out for us to fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before Him, He endured the cross, scorning its shame, and He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. We meditate on His words day and night. Day and night? Come on. How are we supposed to do that, right? I got stuff to do. I can't just sit around all day on the floor mumbling, oh. How does meditation even work? Well, before Bibles were commonly available, Christianity would, Christians would gather daily at a church or at a cathedral for the public reading of Scripture early in the morning before work. Rather than visually reading text on the page in silence as we tend to do, they received the Word audibly as it was read aloud. And having received and reflected on the Word of God, they disbanded. Each person engaged in his or her work for the day. But each individual would retain a word or a phrase or a sentence from the Bible reading to foster their communion with God throughout the day, throughout whatever else they were doing. We can follow a similar pattern as a form of ongoing engaged prayer. First thing, read. But read gently. Gently read the passage out loud, being mindful of each word and phrase. The goal, the goal here is not a large uh, quantity of Scripture. You don't have to read tons to do this, but to engage it if, uh, reflectively with an awareness of God's presence with me. And this may mean reading the text multiple times and then identifying a word or, or, or short phrase that that stands out to you, that speaks to you in some manner. And then number two, we meditate. Now we allow the Scripture to read you, to read us. Use the passage or the phrase to guide your time of reflection and self-examination. How does it apply to you? How does it apply to the circumstances that you are currently in? And then we invite God, speak, reveal what you desire, impart to us through this text. Use it. Holy Spirit, speak through me. Speak to me. Number three, speak. After allowing God and His Scriptures to have the first word, it's now time for us to respond. We communicate our thoughts to God with words. This may be gratitude, might be confession, could be some of your worries, might be an expression of joy. It's any number of emotions that result from your engagement with what you have been reading and what you've been meditating on. What did it make you think? So here's a little side note um, on gratitude as a habit. There is an inseparable link that exists between gratitude and joy. 
oftentimes we can literally thank our way back to joy. Our God has been good to us. So practice looking for the good for which we are so, ob- uh, so frequently oblivious. Not just the big good, but any good. Not just good that is enough to overwhelm all of the bad so there's no bad feelings left, but any good. If it is good, look for it and appreciate it. And then verbally express thanks for it. I will assure you it will not make you feel worse if you do this. Then number four, contemplate. When the speaking ceases, it is time to rest in God's presence, the remainder of your time to be silent, zip it, open to what God has to say. This part is so critical and it's so often overlooked, hurried through. But take time to receive what God is giving, receive His forgiveness, receive His assurance, whatever He is having for you, receive it. As you conclude, take that special word, that phrase, that sentence from the reading, take it with you throughout the day. Use it as a prompt as a reminder of God's presence with you. Remind yourself of what happened already, just in moments. Reflect on how that might work out for the rest of your day. Now, this focus is less about study and more about relationship, more about communion than accomplishment. To pray God's Word, you need to have at least some knowledge of it. Let's, so let's say a growing knowledge of it. Growing is ever expanding in breadth and in depth, but growing also lets us start with nothing. You don't need to be a scholar to start. You can start at zero, and then you grow. Something is better than nothing. So I wanted to show you some instruction that the Apostle Paul has that he was sharing with some of his friends that were in the little baby church in the city of Colossae. Colossians chapter 3, starting at verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, songs from the Spirit. These are all different kinds of ways of praying, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. 17, and whatever you do, whether in word or whether in deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. When you pray using God's words, be sure to keep your mind engaged. And don't treat Scripture like magic phrases or commands to God. Matthew chapter 6, verse 7. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like the pagans. For they will think that they will be heard because of their many words. Eight, do not be like them. For your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. There is intimacy. There is relationship. The way that we pray shapes the way that we live. So what does this look like lived out? Okay, about 550 B.C. Ancient history is frequently hard to nail down to a year. But partway through uh, the 6th century B.C., Governor Darius, King Darius, is running the country, and he names Daniel as one of the three people that all of the regional rulers called satraps are going to have to report to. And Daniel was good, all right? Daniel did a great job, even working for a government that had kidnapped him. 
a government that he didn't support. But the king was going to promote him to be on top of even those three guys, to give him governance over the whole kingdom. And nobody else, especially all of the local boys, liked the thought of Daniel being their boss and getting ahead of them. So they start watching for grounds on uh, what they can charge him with and to bring him down. They want a scandal, and they are off to go look for one. But they can't find one. He's not involved in anything scandalous. And that's part of, the why they, part of the reason why they didn't like him in the first place, because he makes them look bad because he's so honorable. But don't worry, uh, the lack of scandal never stops anyone who is in hot pursuit on the scent of a scandal. If you can't find one, you make one, right? So they look at each other and they start brainstorming. What can we do? Boom, it hits them. I've got it. If we're going to trap him on anything, it'll have to be in relation to something to do with his weird foreign god, right? So all these other guys go up to Darius, and they start sucking up in the traditional manner. Oh, King Darius, may you live forever. All of us guys, Daniel 6 verse 7, the royal administrators, the prefects, the satraps, the advisors, and governors have all agreed that the king should issue an edict and enforce the decree that anyone who prays to any god or human being during the next 30 days, except to you, your majesty, shall be thrown into the lion's den. So Darius feels his head swell quite a bit. And yeah, he does. He goes ahead, he puts it down in writing. And as soon as Daniel hears about this new decree, he goes home, goes upstairs, and he starts praying just like he always does. Three times a day, he gets down on his hands and his knees, and he prays to God. And now, he's not only praying for the guidance that he normally prays for, he's praying for help. And a group of these guys come over to Daniel's house and catch him praying. Surprise, surprise. So they take him, they haul him in before Darius, and they say, guess what? You are never going to believe. What a surprise. What a shock. We all got when we broke into Daniel's house, snuck upstairs, yep, you guessed it, there he was praying like he always does to his God and not to you, Darius. Verse 13, then they said to the king, Daniel, who was one of the exiles from Judah, tossing a little racism, it always helps, pay no attention to him, your majesty, or to the degree, he pays no um, attention to the decree you put into writing. He prays three times a day. <coughs> you will never guess what happens next. But you should totally read your Bibles. Go to Daniel chapter 6 for the exciting conclusion. But for now, let's just take a moment to look at Daniel. Why was Daniel praying? Do you think he was doing it because he had to follow the rules? Do you think he was praying because he had to? Do you think Daniel was praying because it was going to help him live his best life right now? Do you think he was naming it and claiming it and just expecting God to do nothing but bless him because he was doing godly things? No. This was Daniel's habit that had been fashioned for years regardless of the circumstances. He was drawn close to God for wisdom, 
He was drawing close for direction, and he was drawing close for communion. He was in earnest pursuit. He was striving to pray without ceasing. He was connected, and he was linked. So what else can you do to help yourself stay linked to God? When things are lousy and you're feeling lousy, we've talked about this before, but you can preach to yourself. You can use a combination of prayer and Scripture to reset yourself. You can be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and you can be an active participant in doing that. Try what David did. Psalm chapter 42, Psalm 42, verse 5. Why, my soul, are you so downcast? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise my Savior and my God. Six, my soul is downcast within me. Therefore, I will remember from the lands of the Jordan, the heights of Hermon, from the Mount Mazar. Seven, deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. Eight, by day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. Do you know who else did this and to great effect? Two compadres uh, who had some bad things happen to them on their path to preach grace, to preach freedom, to preach hope, and to preach Jesus. Silas and the Apostle Paul. The year is about 49 AD, and the reference is Acts chapter 16. One day, Paul and Silas are just minding their own business, just walking along the road on their way to a place of prayer, no less, when they're met by a female slave. She's not, excuse me, she was not just like any old slave, though, because she had a spirit by which she predicted the future. And that's good business. And her owners made a great deal of money through her fortune-telling Acts chapter 16, verse 17, Luke writes to us. He says, She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are the servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. 18, and she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and he said to her, to, said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that moment, the Spirit left her. Great news, right? A woman set free from spiritual oppression by the power of Jesus Christ. But when her owners found out that their easy money that they made through her and her fortune telling was gone, they were mad. They were really mad. They grabbed Paul, they grabbed Silas, and they dragged them to the marketplace to face the authorities. Verse 20, they brought them there before the magistrates and said, these men are Jews. They're throwing our city into an uproar. 21, by advocating for customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. <coughs> They're really stretching the truth there. And when stretching the truth, it never hurts to throw in a little bit of racism. Again, 22, the crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. 23, after they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. 24, when he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell 
and then fastened their feet in the stocks. So things are not progressing the way Paul nor Silas had envisioned them. Extra, double-secret imprisonment. But then remember, they were on mission. Their mission was not about personal profit. Their, their mission was not about personal security, personal comfort. Their mission wasn't to stay safe. Their mission was to preach Christ and Him crucified. Their mission was that the name of Jesus would go forth and that by any means necessary, His kingdom would be established. You can't establish a kingdom without confronting previous standing kingdoms. Conflict is to be expected, but not violence. They did not engage in physical violence. They did engage in spiritual warfare. They did not see the people who were angry at them as the problem or the issue. They didn't see that the physical, earthly weapons, they didn't see them as being anything that they needed to be concerned with. They were clothed in the spiritual armor of God, and they were going to be found standing, ready to battle. They did not see their battle as being against flesh and blood. And Paul describes it like this at another time, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. For the weapons that we fight with are not the weapons of this world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. And what did that battlefield look like? First, the battle was, was with themselves to focus their hearts and focus their minds through the turmoil that they're in. They needed to preach to themselves. And then they needed to um, come back and ask God to continue to use the circumstances that they are in to bring about another victory in His mission, to plant another flag marking claimed territory. They were looking for a divine breakthrough into a spiritual stronghold. Let me show you the battle scene. Verse 25, about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Phase one, battle engaged. Phase two, then begins. And watch what happens to this physical and the spiritual strongholds. I don't have these verses, just listen. Suddenly there was a silent, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. All at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought that the prisoners had escaped. Now, Paul shouts at him, stop, don't worry, we're all here. No one has run away. No prisoner has escaped. <coughs> and if you were on guard, if you were the guard on duty who's there when the prisoners escape, you'll be killed. And remember, he was given very special instructions to keep these guys locked down. The jailer's obviously having a really hard time figuring out what is going on. He just woke up, right? The place is shaking. He calls for lights. They do a quick search. Nobody had fled. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? How did he make that connection? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. 
They spoke to him, the word of, of the Lord to him, to him and the others in his house. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and he washed their wounds. And then he immediately, he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and he set a meal before them and he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release those men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, uh, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens. And then they threw us into prison. And now they want to get rid of us quietly? Nuh-uh. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates. And when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house, where they met with the brothers and sisters and encouraged them. Then they left. They left and they continued their mission. This was not the end. That was just a chapter. That's just Acts chapter 16. Just a day. Just a day in the life of followers of Jesus who were Christ-centered, Spirit-empowered, and mission-focused. They continued living out their learnings from prayer school, and they began uh, being that real-life testimony to us so that we can see what it might look like in some circumstances, how to keep heading forward, how to keep honestly and in, in continue in that pursuit of Jesus. May we learn to weave prayer into our lives in similar ways. Kind Father, I thank You for the way that You have worked in our world. You have laid out principles. You have revealed things to us um, through Your Word, how You have interacted in the past, what difference it made when we could focus on our, our connection, our communion with You, when we could stay focused on You, and that You would continue to work in us and through us, even in the midst of dark times like Daniel saw, like Paul and Silas saw. Even in the midst of dark times, even in the midst of hard things, you are at work, and we have learned that you can take anything, you can take all things, and you can reshape them into glorifying you. You can transform the terrible. You can repurpose it to bring about good to those that love you. To think about some of that, it's kind of scary. But God, it, it, it's our desire to trust You, to trust You as we keep moving forward, to trust that You will care for us in all the ways that we need to be cared for, that You will provide for us in all the things that we need to be provided for, that even though it doesn't look like the plan is going the way that I would have written it, to trust You that You will, will be, that You can be at work through any and all circumstances. And the centering, the guiding 
interconnection happens through prayer. So God, even this week, I pray that you would spark in us that desire to try prayer, to try to read and then meditate and then to speak and then to listen. And that we would carry something that we started the day with throughout the day, a word, a phrase, a sentence, something that I can use to remind me to refocus, to reboot, to restart throughout the day, and then give me seconds, individual moments where I can reconnect with you. Kind Father, pray that you would, by your Spirit, direct us that we would trust you, that we can follow where you lead. And that we would go forward knowing that you are at work in our world and you have chosen to work in partnership with us. May your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven and use us to be part of that plan, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.